SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 64 with guest Ryan Crocker. Our guest today is Ryan Crocker. Ryan describes himself as a first-class world citizen, born and raised in South Africa and spending time in the UK before moving down under to the very fine New Zealand and then moving on again to Redmond to join the Azure Document DB team. Luckily, wherever he goes, he says there are lots of mountains to ride and slopes to ski in between building some awesome Azure services and engaging with the developer community. So welcome, Ryan. Hey, thanks, Greg. Good to be on your show. Awesome. Listen, so where I'll tell people where I came across you, I saw you recently on the Edge uh, webcast uh, out of Channel 9 where they were sort of discussing Document DB. And so I gather you seem to be the main one evangelizing that at the moment. But <laughs> what I'll get you to do before you start is just tell us how on earth you come to be there. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, and I think... So I've I've grown up, you know, being being a developer, um, you know, back back in the day before I joined Microsoft, um, and I've always been a developer that's been fascinated with data, um, and you know, like most people, you know, I've, I've got my my history and my roots with, with with SQL Server, relational databases, and 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 all that was good, and then I left the the the, the development business and kind of got into consulting and and, and solution architecture business. And then eventually I found myself working for Microsoft. Um, and through, through my travels, like you mentioned, I ended up, uh, with Microsoft in a role in Auckland where I worked with developers from a number of different organizations as they were trying to onboard their solutions into, in, into the Azure platform. And mm-hmm. while I was working with them, you know, and, and I worked with all sorts of, 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 of organizations from the one man startups to, you know, 100, 200,000 kind of organization. Um, and as I started working with these guys, you know, we, I came across more and more these other solutions that were dealing with data that, that I wasn't familiar with. You know, people were storing data in Mongo and people were storing da- data in, in, in Raven and Couch and Cassandra and GraphDB and, and all these kinds of things that I wasn't familiar with. So I started, you know, as an effort to, to familiarize myself with these technologies and to help you know, those, those companies bring their solutions into Azure and how to run those, call them, call them foreign technologies, or at least they were foreign to me, how to run those technologies on, on, on Azure properly. And mm. so that's where I kind of started. And, you know, I found this, this awesome book, Seven Databases in Seven Weeks, or was it Seven Days? Uh, seven Weeks. Um, and I started reading up on these kind of different, different style databases. And, and, and that just, got me back into being the kind of data guy that, that, that I've always been. Um, I think mm. I'm really, really interested in, in, in doing that. And we had some really successful projects, you know, with running other technologies on, on Azure VMs um, and seeing how these other kinds of data technologies 
uh, enabled solutions that previously we were struggling to do with relational databases. You know, some things yeah. that, that were just really difficult. And, and seeing how easy it was for, for, for these other technologies to cope with that. And, um, what, what sort of things do you think are di- difficult in those areas? I mean, uh, if you, I suppose this is the move to a NoSQL mo- um, yeah. sort of move, movement yeah. in the first place. But what, what do you categorize as the main reasons why people head down that path? Well, I think, I think there's two, two, two big drivers, or um, well, two big drivers that I've seen at least. You know, or maybe there's three. Um, you know, SQL, SQL and, and MySQL and Oracle and all those ones that we know and love so well, they're, they're really good at doing relational databases or relational data. Mm-hmm. And that, by relational, I'm sure you know that's a piece of data relates to some other piece of data which relates to some other piece of data. And you end up building these kind of really deep relationship structures. And, and, yep. and you know, relational databases are awesome at doing that. Um, but there are other kinds of data modeling that, that is really, really difficult to do in a relational world. You know, if you look at, let's take, I don't know, uh, an example like LinkedIn's data, right, where I'm, I'm, I'm linked to you and you're linked to someone else and that person's linked to someone else and therefore I've got like a fifth degree of separation between myself and that other person. And, and yeah. you're creating these kind of really strange relations. They're, they're still relationships, but they're, they're really difficult to model in a, in a, in a, in a relational kind of database. Whereas, yeah. you know, you've now got graph databases, which, which are absolutely perfect for modeling that sort of stuff. And, mm. you know, if you, if you look at other sorts of things where you've got these, um, you know, very flat kind of data structures that aren't really related to anything else, they're just these flat structures. Those, those are particularly good and can be easily modeled as, 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 or thought of as, as standalone isolated kind of documents. And mm. so I think what we've seen is that as applications have evolved and as applications have been, been changed, um, we're, we're dealing with different kinds of data. Um, and rather than kind of forcing things into um, a particular technology or a particular way of working, that we may have had to do, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, because there were the, mm. these other kind of technologies out there, We've seen some some guys like you know Facebook and Twitter and them realize that hey you know when you're operating at this sort of scale that these guys do rather than trying to force something let's let's look at other technologies and you know things like Cassandra and Couch and and, and CloudAnt and Mongo and Raven they've all kind mm. of started arriving on the scene making you know the world a little bit easier for certain kinds of things. Um, it's it's interesting though. Although when one of the things I find is that I find people sometimes push these technologies uh, into areas that they probably don't suit, and Absolutely. so uh, the the sort of thing I see there, for example, you know, when I deal with the Twitter API, I mean, every now and then when I deal with it, it just comes back and says, "Oops," <laughs> you know, and, and and so on. Now, now, I mean, I'm okay with it losing a tweet. I'm probably not okay with it losing a bi- business transaction. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and and you know I think the same the, the same argument kind of holds true when you look at it from the other way. You know, we we say mm. don't force things into um, um, a a particular technology when it's not suited there. Um, the same can be said about these other technologies as well. If 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 you've got a particular need, you know, don't don't force something that that it was mm. designed to do. So you know, pick the right tool for the right job. And, you know, more and more and more, we're seeing actual solutions that are not just composed of a single data technology or they're not composed of a single piece of web technology. 
there are so many different pieces out there and different frameworks and different technologies that we're actually now comp- our applications now become these kind of compositions. You know, so yeah. your data tier actually is now made up of three or four different data technologies. One specifically really good at at storing and retrieving you know unstructured data like images. You know, so yeah. don't don't go stick your images into a relational database. Um, mm. You know, go put your images in, in in somewhere that that's really good and really cheap for storing them there. Um, you know, don't go and do things that 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 feel unnatural. Um, if there's a better technology out there, you know, rather rather look to how can I take these things and compose them together and and, and build my solution mm. that. Yeah, it's interesting. Like even uh, in the Mongo situation, uh, there was an interesting example. Uh, recently where somebody had uh, built their Bitcoin exchange on that and uh, a user ended up managing to completely empty the Bitcoin exchange uh, simply because they, they hadn't worked, uh, you know, in, well, you know, transactions. Yeah. Oh, oh well. Yeah, it's this world of kind of, uh, you know, we're going to move to, uh, you know, and I think if you read that article, it's actually published online somewhere, but, they they exploited the fact that a particular technology doesn't have transactions and it's running in eventual consistency and they knew how to do that and yeah you know the guys that were doing it were actually pretty pretty smart um, mm. but you know I think there were still things that we that 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 the Bitcoin exchange could have done differently to to yeah. ensure that that sort of stuff didn't happen. And, you know, I think we learn from our mistakes. Um, I don't believe do. there's other Bitcoin exchanges that are going to be, um, you know, um, I think they may have learned from that mistake. Um, <laughs> a, so, so listen, in, in, in that case, we've got the sort of NoSQL things at one end, yeah. and we've had the relational at the other end. Yeah. Um, and one of the ones that's kind of interesting, of course, is Jason. And uh, if... If I look at um, SQL Server, for example, we got uh, XML support yep. built in in uh, SQL Server 2005, mm-hmm. uh, including XQuery, uh, which I thought was an interesting addition to the database product there. <laughs> um, but I think the industry basically moved to JSON in 2006. Yeah. And uh, if you look at the list of top requested items for SQL Server, the additional uh, of native JSON support is probably been one of the top items on the entire list uh, ever since then. So there's a crying need for someone uh, somewhere to store JSON and work with it effectively. And so now DocumentDB seems to be some middle ground between the NoSQL side and the the, uh, relational side where we can store JSON natively. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you're right. The industry has somewhat kind of ditched XML and moved towards JSON for a number of reasons, I think. You know, I'm not getting to those, but XML with its opening and closing tags is kind of verbose and, you know, waste a lot of space. And mm. we're, we're, we're really sensitive to what goes across the wire and that kind of stuff. So, so JSON's a more compact kind of structure. Um, mm. What's interesting is some, someone has invented an XML schema to represent JSON, which is just bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I must admit, the first place I used to come across JSON was in Ajax calls yeah. out of websites. And again, yeah, it was short, sharp, bursty things, and they didn't want the bulk of XML when they were communicating. And you know, so I think um, you'll see a number of databases actually store or store JSON natively, you know, um, Azure Table Storage has had JSON support for a while. MongoDB, mm-hmm. you know, they store a variant of JSON. 
um, there's a number of kind of database technologies now that, that work with JSON directly. And, you know, DocumentDB, we took, when we, when we set out to kind of build the service, we, we, we looked at it and we went, well, you know, we're not going to just bolt JSON on top of us. We, we really want JSON to be the heart of, of, of our database because it lends itself so well to this concept of no, of no schema, of mm. you know, varying kind of structure. Um, and, and it, it just lends itself really, really well. And we could do some really cool things by taking JSON and, and, and building our indexing technology on top of that. And, you know, so yeah. we took a big bet on, on, on JSON. So that, it, that is our native data format. So when you, yeah. when you pass, um, stuff to us, it comes across as JSON. When you query back for us, it comes back as JSON. It's stored, you know, as JSON in, 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 in the database. It's indexed as yeah. JSON, that kind of stuff. So it look, yeah, it's cert- it certainly ended up being everywhere at the moment. I'm I'm certainly seeing it in almost everything that needs to pass data around. It's, it's surprising the number of places that are we'll, that are now JSON. And we'll probably see we'll probably see JSON support added to SQL Server at some stage. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, that's certainly still in our list of we would love to see that. Um, certainly, it'd be interesting to see the level at which that would end up in there. Yeah. So, for example, they, they, they could add storage, but they could also add, I don't know, the ability to, to query within the JSON and so on, or and or some sort of indexing. Yeah, and so, I mean, it'll be very but, interesting to see where it goes, you know, if it's just going to be, you know, the... the uh, the same as we had the select for XML or select XML. yeah maybe for JSON or something instead yeah. yeah that's right but I think there's more to 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 what Document DB is doing uh, mm. rather than just storing JSON uh, you know I think yeah it, it it's fundamentally this ability to be able to store things that are different um, together and not be constrained by this concept of a, of, of a table that has columns yeah. with, with data types and rows. And as soon as you get a yeah. record that now slightly doesn't fit into that table, you've either got to force it in there. Yeah, what, what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah that, or no, you've got to restructure right. the table or something. You know, with, with this, we, yeah. can, we can take, you know, we, we have a collection of documents, and it literally just is that. It's a, it's a bag of documents, and each document is, is JSON, so it has a structure. But every single yeah. one of them can be entirely different. Um, yet we still index everything and allow you to query on everything. Yeah. Um, and look, yeah, I, I think that that's going to be an awesome uh, option to have that available. And look, down the track, my guess is that applications in increasingly will just be things that string together services that are provided uh, externally yeah. uh, rather than things that yeah, necessarily build and store and so on all themselves. I think it'll just be... Uh, the skills in the future is going to be about how you tie together uh, d- different services to achieve an outcome. I mean, I think and so having it as a service is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I, I heard someone say, you know, many, many years ago that uh, I can't remember where it was. I think it was when I first joined Microsoft many, many years ago. Someone said, well, you know, as as you're either a developer that builds kind of database technologies and network transport stacks and and, you know, that sort of stuff. Or you're an application developer building line of business applications, adding value to, to, to your business. And, you know, if you want to build databases and you want to build, you know, network protocols and, and, and transports and, and all that kind of stuff, go work for someone who, who, who builds that stuff, you know. But if, yeah. you, if you want to be the, the, the person who's building a business application to add value to your business, to, to get a job done, to solve a problem, to be more profitable, whatever the case may be, you, you know, I don't. If I was that kind of developer, I don't really want to have to be mucking around with with, with stuff. You know, I don't want to have to be yeah. worrying about how do I manage indexes and how do I build indexes. You know, someone a customer of ours said the other day, 
you know, not for, for, for him, his mantra is not how to index better, but just how not to index at all. You know, let, yeah. let the database technology figure it out. Um, and, and, you know, you can guide it and you can give it some hints, but let it figure it out. I don't want to have to worry about indexing. Mm. Just let it do that. I don't want to have to worry and about backups. I, I, I think it's the same target uh, eventually with SQL Server as well. My mm-hmm. my take on that is I think very very much it should be a service, which it already kind of is. Yeah. Uh, but again, I think it will eventually become a much more self-tuning, self-everything service. And in the end, you'll just have a service with a T-SQL endpoint well, and you'll just talk to it. Well, yeah. That's the idea. You know, they're, they're, I know it's a long way away, but they're, I mean, the server knows when a query is not performing well, right? Yeah. Um, a server knows when the index is optimal or when the index is not optimal. Um, it should be able to learn from that and kind of tune that index itself. Why, mm. why does it have to wait for someone to come along and say, oh, by the way, you know, this index that you already know about is not very optimal. Let me let me change it like this, which you probably already know about anyway. Let me change it like mm. this, you know, so that it can become more optimal. Um, yeah, you know, I think we're a long and, way. From the, that, but. I suppose the thing also with indexing is that at the moment you have to know in advance what the queries will look like, or you have to wait until there's pain uh, to to try and sort it out anyway. So uh, and that's yeah, one of the things that we're trying to kind of solve with DocumentDB as well is you know, mm. we realise that you don't really know when you set out to design your data model, you know, right up front before you've even built your application. You don't. You have an idea of what your application is going to need, and even if you know today what your application needs, in six months' time the queries are different, or, or the, the the workload is different. You know, you've gone from a write-heavy to read-heavy to a bursty kind of workload, or whatever, and all that affects indexing, right? All that affects yeah. how you're storing your data, um, and that's one of the kind of goals with with, with Document DB is to to try and and, and be more flexible and be, be more agile to let you just focus on storing your data and retrieving it and 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 leave the indexing up to the database engine. Um, and now in terms of the interface for people talking to it, so unlike a T-SQL endpoint, um, this is just a stand, this is a REST style endpoint. Yep. So I, uh, we post to put new things in, we put to update them, we delete to delete them and use get to retrieve them. Yep. And, uh, Absolutely. and so basically just stock standard verbs. Yeah, so it's just, it, it is REST. Um, you know, we've got a bunch of client SDKs for your various languages sitting on top of the REST API, which we, we wrap and enhance and we do some things. So, you know, we'll, we'll handle retries and we'll handle some stuff inside of the, the .NET SDKs for you and we'll handle serialization and deserializing. So you can just work with your .NET objects and we worry about converting it to JSON on the wire. Um, yeah, but yeah, and as well as .NET, I, I was pleased to see you also had Node.js options yeah. and Python and Java, yeah, and so yeah, on. So they, it doesn't really matter so much yeah. what the client is. There, there are yeah, good we, connectivity options. We've had some guys. I mean, if you the the response has been kind of um, you know overwhelming, but if you go and have a look, you know, on on GitHub today, you'll you'll actually see people are building other SDKs for us. Um, you know, so someone has started an initiative to build an SDK for Go. Um, so shortly there will be a Go SDK published, um, and you know there are some other ones like PHP. I saw the other day and 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 stuff like that. So, you know, it's it's again just over that standard REST API with the standard verbs. You're able to kind of go and build your own SDK or, or customize your SDK. And we'll yeah. have all our SDKs will all be open sourced anyway. So anyone in the community, if you want to 
um, you know, contribute and change the SDK or, or whatever, then you can you know, join the community and, and, and contribute to it. So yeah. I, that's one of the real powers of having like a REST API sitting under it. Is it. It's so easy to yeah. yeah go off and build whatever is needed. Yeah. You're not going to get sort of boxed into a corner and doing that. Yeah, no, that's great. And Alison, so basically we have a, a JSON uh, document store, mm-hmm. and it's also got the ability to store attachments. I noticed as well. Yeah. So basically, what you can have is you can have a binary. It's it's designed for binary attachments. And those mm-hmm. we offload into blob storage under the covers. So the, the JSON itself stored on our nodes on, on, on SSDs, uh, yep. for really low latency and really low kind of, you know, write operations and read operations. And yeah, I noticed that it, it's actually optimized for write operations and it's yep. SD, SSD backed under the covers. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you give us like any binary kind of stuff that you want to attach to that document, um, you can give it to us as an attachment, and we then offload that attachment into Blob Storage, where we all manage the life cycle of that for you. So if you uh, then delete the document, we go and delete the attachment. Um, if you query for the document, you can query for it with its attachments or without its attachments or just the attachments, you know, whatever yeah. you want to be able to do. So, yeah, we've we've sort of kind of um, built a, a, a file stream type data type. Yeah, just yeah, 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 yeah. To Blob Storage. And so, yeah, so like any of these in this case, you know, it's schema-free, so in that case we can just put basically arbitrary JSON documents in. Yep. The um, indexing is the thing that's interesting. Now, from what I could see, it seemed to auto-index an awful lot of stuff, but you could uh, put influence over what it did and didn't influ- uh, index in terms of performance. Yep, so by default, if you leave, if you left all the defaults on, we automatically, consistently um, hash index everything in your JSON document. Uh, mm-hmm. And we, through lots of work with and, and collaboration with, with some internal teams, we've come up with an indexing t- technology that we believe can keep up with, you know, high rights volumes at a, you know, over a sustained long period of time. Yep. So you don't have to worry about the fact that, you know, because we're indexing everything, you know, your write performance is is, is going to suffer. We 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 mm-hmm. believe that it um, it can kind of keep up. Now, if you want to get even more write performance out of the system, you can kind of start playing around with you know changing the consistency of of or the indexing mode from consistent to lazy, for instance, which will yeah. then kick in an async indexing process which will give you even mm. higher write speed, but then you get some kind of inconsistent reads until the indexer is caught up. You can yeah. also do things like, you know, if you've got a JSON document that's got, I don't know, arbitrary 100 attributes in it, and you know you're only ever going to query on 10 of them. Well, what you can do to save space and, and, and you know, make the, the charge for the kind of operations less and to eke out the best performance that you can, you can actually go in and exclude out the 90 properties that you don't ever gonna, or you're never going to query on. Yeah, actually, that that raises a good point because again, in terms of performance, mm-hmm. uh, the unit you buy this in, I gather, is capacity units, yep. and that seemed to be a combination, from what I could see, of 
storage in gigabytes and also request units, which sounded like a bit of a nebulous sort of (laughs) thing as to what that was. So what we've done is is effectively it's a multi-tenanted service, right? So we're running multiple tenants on on a node, and we need Mm -hmm. to provision up or slice up the capacity of that machine so in, in into tenants and and that's so what we've done is we've sliced things up into these capacity units and that's how we mm-hmm. kind of break or slice up the boxes into these things called capacity units and then you know we just said all right well each each capacity unit is going to have a certain amount of storage and it's going to have a certain amount of throughput capability and when we looked at it we went well you know some operations are going to be a lot more expensive than other operations. You know, if I'm writing a, a 1K document with five properties in it, um, it's going to have a particular kind of um, impact on my throughput or mm-hmm. on the CPU or on my memory or on my disk I.O. or whatever the case may be. If I'm yep. writing a 256K document with 150 properties and they're, you know, quite jagged and nested, that's going to have a very, very different impact on 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 your performance. So to be able to give you this predicted kind of, or a way to calculate a, a a predictable model, we came up with this normalized concept called a request unit. So everything that you do on the server, whether it's uh, a request, whether it's an update, whether it's an executor stored procedure, doesn't matter what it is. Everything we calculate, so we've got a like an accounting engine basically that says, mm-hmm. all right, this operation costs you five request units. This operation costs you 100 request units. This operation costs you 10 request units. Now, if you do that same operation tomorrow, the same cost will apply. So you can start getting this level of predictability so that you can actually plan your capacity, right? So you would say, well, I do so many of these, so many of those. I estimate I'm going to do so many of these. And you'll be able to work out to a, to a fairly accurate level what your, what your total request unit spend is. Mm. And then you can actually know how many capacity units you need to buy in order to satisfy your the number of request units that you're using. So that's yeah. all a request unit is. It's this kind of virtual currency. And when you buy a, a single capacity unit, currently you get 2,000 request units per second. So you know you, you can spend 2,000 of these things a second. Go do some queries. Go do some inserts. Go fire some stored procs. You know, see what your charge is. We tell you on, in the response of every operation that we do, we tell you what the charge is. So you can see that, hey, this query by ID cost me two and a half units. This query. Ah, oh, so that's, that's actually in what the header or the body of the return it's is? In, it? It's in the header of the return. So if you have a, ah, you that's have a awesome. response, there's a header called charge. And that'll actually yep. tell you the charge that we, that we were accounting for this operation. Ah, I must play more with Fiddler. <laughs> Go and have a look. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't yeah. hadn't noticed that sitting in there. That, that's awesome, actually. So this is really good for being able to estimate, uh, yeah. and also I suppose the performance of different types of queries in terms of those costs. Yeah. So yeah. Shortly, you know, we'll have in the portal at some point um, a way to be able to visualize, you know, which operations are costing you a lot, which operations mm-hmm. are are not effective and and, and efficient will allow you to kind of be able to change your indexing policy, maybe kind of exclude out some paths, maybe change the precision of some paths, whatever the case may be, and then rerun the same operation and see what that does to your charge. Um, and you'll see that your charge could come down. Hopefully your charge won't go up because then you've gone the wrong way. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, if your charge then comes down, that means you can now do more of these operations um, per second than you could before. And 
transactions as well. So it looks like a level of support for transactions. Yeah. What what are the boundaries for that though? So a transaction at the moment um, is bound to a single collection. So think of a collection okay. as a unit of partition, not a a lot of people in fact it's even in like some of the, the documentation for, for other document databases where they say, you know, if a, if a record in SQL is the same as a document in, in, in a document database, well, then a table in SQL is the same as a collection in a, in a document yeah. database. And that's, and that's fundamentally wrong, um, I believe. Mm-hmm. You know, a collection to us is, is because it's a no, no schema uh, database, you can store mm-hmm. any schema you like inside of a collection. So why limit yourself to storing only records of the same type together. I mean, mm-hmm. because that then limits you in terms of what you can do around things like collections and joining and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. So for us, mm-hmm. a collection really is a partition. So all of our stuff at the moment is bound to a single collection. So transactions, joins, queries, all of those things are, are bound to a single collection. Mm-hmm. So if your data spans multiple collections, then you need to start doing like fan out type queries where you yeah so it's the client that needs to do yeah. that not not the service that does that in that currently or yeah. or some other tier yeah, yeah. so so currently mm-hmm. um, there's the client that that needs to do that now we're looking at what some of our other so SQL DB for so SQL DB or Azure DB what's it called today yeah DB so SQL it's DB. Microsoft Azure SQL database hey. so that one <laughs> or SQL Azure as we also call it. Um, that one, I mean, they've just recently released a preview of something called Elasticscale, which yes. is is a change from federations before, where federations used mm-hmm. to try and do it on the server level, and it tried to kind of be one solution for everybody. Um, Elasticscale is now kind of a library that you can kind of plug into your application, and your application then actually talks to Elasticscale, and Elasticscale kind of manages in the background for you which actual database, you know, it's yeah. been written to. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. So we're looking at, at how they've done it, and we're looking at some other databases and saying, well, all right, these guys have decided to kind of try and do it at the server level. These guys have said, we're not even going to enter into that. It's all up to you. Um, we're trying to look and see what's going to be the best approach. So you'll see stuff yeah. coming from us in the future where we will we will make this easier for you. But today, um, it's it's the application kind of you know, needs to needs to manage that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and look, I, I think in the future, if you're looking at all sorts of scale things, yeah. um, o- often I think uh, having the application do that is often a very good solution anyway. I, yeah. I look at people who are trying to do fan out queries with SQL database, <laughs> and, I, and I think that actually misses the point. Yeah. I would actually rather the application send out a whole lot of requests uh, concurrently Absolutely. in parallel rather than... Yeah. Have, have the the one service at the back end trying to well, feed it out. Well, that's. I mean, it is interesting that you kind of say that. I mean, we've even seen um, 
you know, some queries where you do this kind of, hey, select me a record where this ID is in a list of other values, right? I mean, that's yeah. a common query that people write. Now, that's a fairly expensive query to actually process on, in, in the back end on a server because you have to do a bunch of scans and a whole bunch mm. of things. So it's a fairly expensive query. Now, imagine if there were like five records in that in the list that you were doing. Now, it's actually pretty easy to write um, and fire off those five individual queries uh, yes. in parallel, sit in .NET and wait for them to return and then kind of, you know, aggregate the results back together again. Mm. And, and a lot of time that's, that's actually more efficient than doing a big, nasty, ugly select where in kind of query. Um, you know, you're, you're firing smaller requests at a server. I'm sure you're doing five kind of network round trips, but, you know, mm. you're not doing them synchronously. You're doing That's right. You're not doing them sequentially. Yeah. You're doing them at the same time. And I think the other thing is it probably gives it a more natural threading in terms of, uh, you know, each one's going to be picked up by a separate thread yeah. to go and do it. So, and you just wait for them all to complete. Yeah. And then you just wait for them all to complete. And then mm. you have the result kind of sitting there and, you, and then you can kind of filter and aggregate and join and do whatever yeah. you like in, in the application. So, you know, I think um, now one I did want to ask about yeah. though is the query syntax, which again, is sort of SQL-like uh, for, uh, from what I've seen as well. Um, it's mostly SQL. <laughs> mostly SQL. Yeah, it's, it's got a few clauses in there that uh, that I haven't seen in SQL, though. Yeah, so there, there are a few things in there, and I think what we've tried to do is we've tried to keep it as close to SQL as we possibly can. Um, mm. You know, we use select from and where like you expect them to be used. Um, we use the, you know, field as some alias like you would expect. Yep. Um, you know, we, we use the notion now understand that a document is kind of hierarchical. So we use the notion yeah. of, of the dot kind of syntax. So SQL developers mm -hmm. are familiar with, you know, like server dot schema dot table, whatever. Yeah. So we use that same kind of syntax to be able to navigate a hierarchical tree. Um, yeah. But then there are some kind of interesting ones, and we've had to introduce those just because of the fact that we're dealing with a schema-free kind of um, business. Whereas a lot of times in SQL Server, we, you know, the engine knows before it starts executing the query, it knows a lot of things because it can infer a lot of that stuff from the schema. Um, yeah. Now we don't have that luxury. We have no schema. So we don't know before we start processing those records necessarily what we're going to run into until we run into it. Um, so there are some things that we've had to introduce into that SQL query language for those specific things. So you'll see that mm. uh, there's a particular keyword called value, and that's just, you know, do you want the value of the element or do you want the actual element itself? The actual element, yeah. And, you know, and I noticed there was, a, from memory, it was an on or for clause or a for clause or there, something. There's an on. I think on. there's an on when you're actually doing some joins. So yeah, it might have been yeah. So that 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 was a little different. Some of that, but yeah, no. I've, yeah, overall, we struggled with that one for a while. In terms yeah. of what what was going to be the easiest syntax to kind of make sense? And uh, yeah. I think some of the stuff that we've done now is setting us up for where we want to go with a query engine in the future. Um, yeah. So like a lot of people, I think Scott, called, Scott Scott was saying yeah, it was just like grab the SQL and run, but yeah, <laughs> it, it didn't quite look yeah. like that to me. I mean, yeah, so, so, so simple. Some simple SQL like select ID from you know yeah. a collection name where a field equals a value that that's just normal SQL. But when you start digging into a little bit more complicated things and you're starting to kind of traverse that hierarchical tree, then it starts getting a little bit more complicated. And and when we want to start introducing things like 
you know, find me all documents that don't have this particular attribute or find me all documents that have this particular attribute. You know, those kinds of things, they don't have a SQL syntax for them today because you would never, there, there, you know, there is no matching kind of query in, in, in SQL Server. You know, yeah. you can't query a SQL table and say, find me records that, you know, don't have this field because all mm. query or all elements in that table have that field. Have that field. They yeah. may be not. Yeah, actually, but it's been very similar in XML. I ended yeah. up having to write uh, things that said, look, find me this value if it happens to be there. Yeah. You know, that, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, so, so it, it, it is a different way of doing it. We've had to deal with, you know, because yeah. like someone may say, well, here's my query where, you know, ID equals a particular value. Well, not every document well, okay, ID was a bad example, but if you said yeah. name equals Greg, well, not every document in this collection actually has an attribute called name. Name, yeah. <laughs> so what do we do? No, indeed. So it's... That's good. I noticed also there is a concept of something that's, I suppose, a stored procedure, you might call it, uh, for familiarity or server-side programmability. Yeah. Um, and so you're able to do that. Um uh, Again, though, from what I noticed, that seemed to be uh JavaScript. Yeah. It's definitely JavaScript, um, just because JavaScript works that well with JSON. You know, it's it's the language mm. you know that that most people use with JSON. Um, it's JavaScript's kind of become that what what JSON has become for data. JavaScript has kind of become for 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 programming languages. You know, you yeah. find it now on mobiles. You find it now in the web. You find it now on the server with Node. Um, so for us, na- JavaScript was a natural extension. Um, yeah. Yeah, we, I mean, we use it all over the place in client applications, yeah. that's for sure, and yeah. and there's so many people use it uh, as Node on the server, and that'll be an easy thing for them to then uh, get their head around. Yeah, and I mean, when we sat down and said, well, you know, what are some of the things that people miss about SQL Server or, or you know, a, a typical database server technology? Some mm. of the things that they said they missed was the ability to do things on the server. Now, yeah. you know, when we when we announced DocumentDB and we announced the fact that there was server programma- programmability, you know, some people took their pitchforks out and sharpened it and said, <laughs> you know, you're going back 20 years and forcing us to do things on the server. But but we're not. I mean, you can do everything client-side if you want in your app. Yes. But there are certain cases where we're doing things on the server makes sense. You know. Of course, and look, it's. I mean, it certainly does in in SQL Serverland as well. I, I mean, I cringe every time I see somebody rehydrate every single object in a table individually, you know, back up to a middle tier and then write them all back again, you know, or things like that. It, I mean, it's, it's just it, ridiculous. There, yeah. there, there are some there are some cases where where, where stored procedures make 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 really good sense. And yes. and in the document DB world, you know, one of the really good things about stored procedures is that. That store procedure runs in, in within the context of a transaction, so you can actually yes. now, you know, make changes to four to multiple documents of different types um, under the covers, all within the boundaries of a of a transaction. Yeah, so that's awesome. You know, you you're not you don't have this world where you don't have kind of transactions anymore. I can actually now debit an account and credit an account within a transaction. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which uh, a lot of the uh, document ones that. Don't currently do, oh, which is very important. Yeah, they can't yeah. that kind of stuff. So no. Um, and so, listen. In terms of scale out, yeah. this is the next area of interest to me. So, uh, again, we can sort of have replicas of it, uh, but that's where we start to trade off the consistency. Is it? Or is it uh, we choose well, whether to trade that off or not? Well, that's the interesting thing about DocumentDB is that 
we allow you to kind of choose your consistency. Rather than dictating it to you, we allow you to, to choose what consistency you want to run. So we've mm-hmm. got four levels of consistency that you can choose. Um, you know, and so right from strong consistency, which everybody's familiar with, because that's what SQL Server does by default, um, yep. right down to eventual consistency, which people are becoming more familiar with, because that's what a lot of these other NoSQL systems do. And we also have yes. two that are kind of in, in between. And the one that's really interesting is the one that we've set as the default, which we've got, and we've called session consistency. And what session consistency is, is the is a good trade-off between strong and eventual, where to you on that session, you're operating in this kind of like strong consistency mode where you can read your own rights and you get a consistent kind of behavior. So if you change your name from Greg to Sam and immediately do a read, you will see that the name is Sam. You won't get this weird inconsistent kind of behavior you sometimes get on eventual databases. But to everybody else that's connecting to that database, they may not see your update immediately. To them, Mm. it's an eventual kind of thing. They will eventually... Um, get the fact that you've changed your name. But to them, yeah. yeah, it's not that important. To them, what's important is what they're currently doing with the piece of data that they're currently working on. Uh, yeah, look, that, that would answer a very large number of scenarios that yeah. we come across. Yeah. And that's why we've made that one the default, because we think that that one for a lot of people will be, will be a good kind of compromise between, mm. between, you know, strong and eventual. But if you're running an application that, that's got, you know, massive, massive rights, um, you know, kind of speeds, and, and, and you don't really care about the fact that you, get, you, that you can potentially get some inconsistent reads, well, then run eventual consistency. You know, it's going to be your, yeah. quickest, your, your quickest one. If you mm. are running an application where you absolutely have to have, you know, consistent reads every single time, and you can't ever afford a dirty read, well, then strong consistency is the way to go, and we allow you to kind of change that, which is which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, what about write guarantees, though? So if it's eventual consistency, what does that mean in terms of writes? Does it have to commit to a replica before it tells you it's done it? Or? Um, so eventual consistencies, we'll, we all return back the, the act that the write has happened as soon as it's been committed to one of the replicas or one of the nodes, yeah. right? Um, and then eventually in the background, we will replicate that out to, to, um, um, uh, to, to the other replicas. Now, in, a, in, a, in an eventual consistency world, we will still allow reads to happen, and the read could be landing on any of the replicas anywhere. And, yeah. and we will still yeah. allow, because our, our, our replicas are actually serving reads, um, so it's not just the primary. So primary yeah. takes all the rights, but our replicas serve reads. So I think I think what I was getting at is that if it tells you it's written, yeah. is it actually written? Oh yeah, if it tells yeah, you it's can written, you guarantee it, that? Yeah. I, if it tells you it's written, I guarantee you it's written. Um, yeah, it okay. may not be replicated to the other nodes yet, but it but it has been written absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Now, what about um, security? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, now, I gather there's item level permissions in place. Yeah. And so how is that done? We've we got a series of roles or? Um, so today what you can do is we have um, the notion of users. So like SQL's got this notion of users. Yes. You can, you can create, and, and you can also create this, this, this notion of permissions. So you can say, mm-hmm. this is a permission object that grants me uh, or that, that grants read access to a particular document or read write access to a particular collection. And then what yep. you do is you can assign user or users to that permission object. So you can actually say, you know, use, these users have this permission or those users have that mm. permission. Um, 
What we normally say in SQL Server, though, is we don't like individual user permissions. We try and <laughs> drop people into roles yeah. and assign permissions to roles yep. instead. Yeah. So, so that is the, that has been identified as as one of the gaps that we that we need to mm-hmm. work on is is role based um, authentication. Now we're yep. we're we're kind of waiting to see what happens with the rest of Azure and its role based um, you know permission structure. Yeah. So as you know, we're starting to add our back into into like the Azure portal and we're starting to mm. kind of do things like this role in the Azure portal has read only access or write only access. Yeah. So what we're trying to do is we, we don't want to go off and build this this notion of roles and then you know have to roll that back out and then implement yep. something else. So we're kind of in a in a in a waiting game at the moment to see where where our back is kind of going and, and how we can leverage some of that stuff and whether we you know, how are we going to integrate into Active Directory or Azure Active Directory, for instance? Right. Yeah, because I must admit that's one of the big asks in terms of yeah. uh, the, the database formerly known as SQL Azure <laughs> uh, tends to be, uh, you know, people are after OAuth yeah. uh, authentication or things like that uh, rather than just SQL Server authentication. Yeah, absolutely, you know, and, and I think that's been an ask since I've been working since before I was in this role. And it's, yeah. and it's an ask that, that people are already having on, on, on document DB. And it, it, it's mm. an ask that we will answer at some point. We just, we just waiting for some things to kind of catch up before, yeah. before we can make a bet on it. So if you have users at the moment, so I presume that means you have users and passwords. Um, what does that mean about things like password policies? Okay, so we don't actually, ha- we're, we're not a, we're not an identity provider. So we don't actually have yeah. passwords, right? Um, okay. Users have request tokens. Um, so every user mm-hmm. you create in the system gets a token. So like, you know, when you work with storage or when you work with DocumentDB, we give you these master keys. Yeah, an access key. Access yeah. key. So every user gets an access key. Um, now, what will end up happening is your user needs to go off and authenticate wherever your users are authenticating today. Yep. Your application would then say, yep, I, I trust that this user is who they say they are because I trust this identity provider. Yeah. This user has access to my application. All's good. You would then go off to Document DB potentially, and you would say, "Hey, Document DB, this is for this user. Give me their permission levels, and we will then yeah. craft up a token for you that that contains those permissions, contains an expiry date, and all that kind of stuff. And we sign yeah. it and encrypt it, and we give that token back to you. You can then take that token. Your application tier can take that token, give it to the user, and the user can then use that token to talk directly to Document DB." Um, yep, all makes sense. So there's, uh, listen, so there's another cap- stored. Yeah. yeah, another capability then uh, that we would normally have in a database uh-huh. uh, is some way of profiling, and this is something that's also been missing from the database formerly known as SQL Azure, <laughs> is some way of attaching like a profiler. Because if I want to collect all the queries yeah. that are being run against uh, DocumentDB, is there a way to do that um, at the server end rather than at the client end? Um at the moment, no, um, mm-hmm. and and it's something that, that that is definitely on our ask list, and, and we're looking yep. at it and, and determining the best way to do this. Now, we we log everything down to an individual activity ID, um, yep. but it's how do we expose that out to to users in a meaningful kind of way? Um, yeah, and and so it's definitely something that we want to look at yeah. in terms of how do look, we, I, how do we do. I suppose at the moment we could build just a proxy that sits as a 
a service in Azure or something anyway and hit yes. that and have yes. it rerouted and so we could do that to yeah, so support out. But yeah. Stuff like that. We we are gonna add we are gonna add to the portal soonish, I think. I can't remember the exact roadmap, but soonish we'll add the ability to see what queries have been executed. Uh, yep. see like SQL Azure has the ability to see your most top your top five executed queries, what yeah, the yeah, yeah. was, that kind of thing. So we'll we'll have that ability inside the management portal um, before too long, and then you'll be able to kind of get some level of indication. Um, but it yeah. won't be every single query, you know. Um, whether we create these like management views or or something like that, we don't really mm. know yet where we're going to go with that. Uh, yeah, I think if we build like a redirect a proxy or something, that'd be kind of interesting because you could also catch the cost from what you were saying, yeah. Yeah, basically details and things in that as well. That that would actually be kind of cool. It could be kind of cool. Um, yeah. Look, on on a similar vein, um, the next question is usually about auditing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so again, is there anything uh, in place or in play? Or? Um, so not today. We we don't have mm-hmm. um, automatic auditing in play today. Um, we've got. A couple of customers that have that are using triggers to do auditing. So there's a, yep. the notion of a post. Oh, that's right. There is a concept of a trigger. There's isn't a there? there's a pre-trigger and a post-trigger. So you can use yeah. triggers to do auditing if you want. Um, can you can you talk to the uh, SQL Server guys and uh, think about them doing pre-triggers or? <laughs> we we we're, we're looking at. I know the SQL the SQL DB guys have kind of now released um, native kind of auditing capabilities. I believe. Um, so we're, we're, we're speaking to them. Um, we're all the same team ultimately. Um, yeah. and we're speaking to them to kind of see what we can learn from that. But today the best way to do that would be with a, with a pre or a post trigger. Yeah, trigger, yeah. In fact, yeah. And, and that's, that's another good scenario where a server side bit of code actually makes sense. Yep, absolutely. Um, and and yeah. the nice thing with our triggers is, is that you'll see when you use them is that you actually have to opt into them. Um, so the trigger can be defined on the server. But when you actually execute the, the command, you actually have to opt into the, the, the fact that oh, it needs to execute. So it won't just execute unless you actually tell it, hey, look, with this operation, fire the following trigger. Um, mm. But alternately, you could make the operation be one that calls a procedure there, absolutely. and it could do the logging as well as doing the operation. Yeah, so exactly. So the operation could just be a call to a store procedure, and the store procedure yep. could do your audit log, and it can actually do the operation, and it could do it all in a transaction if you wanted to. Yep. Yeah, now that's nice. And so, look, for people to – that's awesome. Actually, it all sounds awesome. So for people to try this, of course, the obvious thing is that Azure is a really easy place for them to go and try it as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this will work on, on, on any Azure account, so whether it's a you know, full-blown pay-as-you-go account or an MSDN account or a trial account. Um, you've just got to go to the preview portal, um, mm-hmm. and in the preview portal, just go sign up for .db account. Um, create a database, create a collection, and start putting some documents in, and, and off you go. Um, That's cool. We've just released some new kind of portal capabilities that are, allow you to kind of, um, you know, write some queries, edit some documents, that kind of stuff right there in the portal, so you don't actually need to write any code at all. Um, mm. But when you're ready to write some code, you just grab the, the SDK of your choice and have a look at some of the samples that we've got published, and, and you should be good to go. Yeah. 
And also a fellow Kiwi, I noticed uh, Chris Ald had a, <laughs> a Document DB session at uh, Azure Conf uh, the other day. Yes, and so yeah, I'll put a link. Um, yeah, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. So, And I know he's just done, the I think, the same session or a very similar session at, at Tech at Australia. Tech at Australia, yeah. So, so those were pretty good sessions, I think. Um, and then there is... There is Azure Fridays and Cloud Cover. You'll see I've done two two sessions on there. Um, so have a look at those. And, you know, if anyone wants more information, they can reach out to me. Yep. Cool. Magic. Alrighty. Well, thank you so very much for your time today. It's your pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Awesome. Thanks. Awesome. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks, Thanks. Greg. Ciao.